0: Well, I invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. Again, we're going to be in chapter 8. Contemplating his own conversion experience, his coming alive to Jesus, the uh, very gifted 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, Wrote this down. He says, One night the thought struck me, How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed. I thought. Then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the Scriptures. How came I to read the Scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. And that he was the author of my faith. And so the doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. It's that humble and worshipful perspective on God's saving grace, it, 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 that it did not originate in the nighttime brooding of this 19th century preacher. N- neither did it originate with the great reformers, Luther, Calvin, others in the 16th century. It, it was a conviction also of a now I guess somewhat well-known third-century North African theologian by the name of Augustine, but it didn't start there either. The Reformed doctrine of salvation, which we proclaim here at Emmaus Road Church, was the conviction of the prophets and the apostles, and in particular Paul, who wrote this astonishing letter to the Romans through which we've been making our way since this past January. Since arriving in Romans chapter 8, we've slowed down. For the next three weeks, we're going to slow down even more in order to focus on the substance of of just one verse, namely verse 30, where we observe what some have referred to as the, the golden chain. And it's in this golden chain that Paul describes what for centuries has been known as the Ordo Salutis, that's a Latin phrase that means the order of salvation. In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul deals with the same question on which Spurgeon contemplated late that one night. How is it that someone becomes a Christian? And today we're going to give our attention to just two links in that golden chain, those whom God predestined, He also predestined. Those whom God predestined, He also called. And how I pray that it might stir the same assurance, peaceful assurance, joyful assurance, as it did for Spurgeon. And that we would humbly and gladly ascribe our change, our conversion, wholly to God. So I invite you um, to follow along. And if you're able to stand in honor of God's Word, I'm going to read uh, from Romans I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28 through verse 30. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for their good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to join into what has already been prayed, what we already have sought. We ask for the Holy Spirit. We ask for the working of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would be glorified We would see with the eyes of our hearts. We would hear with ears that can get a hold of truth. We want to sense your particular love, your particular care, your particular work in the lives of your people. And we want to know how sweet that is. We recognize what a miracle it is. And so, Lord, would you take doctrine and bring it to bear upon us and our, our senses and our experience? This is the this we believe is the promise that you've made when you say that you pour out your spirit into our hearts. You pour your love into our hearts. You pour your life into our hearts. So Pour it out. Pour it out. Fathers in this room I know want their kids to know that they know them and love them and care for them. And how much more will our holy and perfect Father give that same reality to His children? So let us know You. Let us know that we're known by You. Let us know that we're loved by You. Let us know that You care for us. Reveal yourself among us now, we ask, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I believe that, that Spurgeon got Paul right. And that is that we owe our salvation wholly to God. And Paul's aim in Romans 8 verse 30 is to show that God is Himself is the ultimate and decisive cause of our salvation. Not us, God. God acted first, and so if we, like Spurgeon, feel any desire for God, it's, it is a result of God. If we, like Spurgeon, are inclined to pray and call out to God, it's a result of God. If we are inclined to read and dwell on the, the truth of the Word of God, it is a result of God. And if we are so moved to turn from vain and false hopes and to trust God and all that God promises to be for us in Christ, it is owing entirely to God. Salvation is not an achievement of ours. Salvation is an achievement of God. We don't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. That's the point of Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. It's He. He did it. And He did it all. And there is a necessary order. Glorification doesn't come first. One must experience justification in relationship to God the Father before one may experience conformity to the image of God the Son. And and before one may experience justification, one must turn from hoping in the vain and false hopes held out by sin to trust the sin-atoning, justice-satisfying life And death of Jesus. And how can one who is dead to God. Spiritually dead and unresponsive. Turn to God in Christ. The spirit of God must first make our spirits live. And whose spirit lives. Unless God supernaturally calls and creates life into being within us. In order that we might see him as desirable and move toward him. Loved ones. The the links in the so called Golden chain. They're perfectly ordered. They're perfectly ordered for a particular end that God gets all the glory. The links in the golden chain are of divine strength so that nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth or visible or invisible might break them. What God begins, God completes. And therefore, from beginning to end, salvation is a result of God. He is the ultimate and decisive cause of our salvation. Now, today I want to zero in on that, the first phrase of Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom God predestined, He also called. It's such a enormous proposition. (laughs) So enormous, it's worth saying together. Let's let's do that. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Ready? Here we go. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Say it again. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And, And one of the crucial key words in that phrase is the word called. Christians are Christians Because they are called by God. It's vital that we get the meaning of this word called right. Because so much hangs on the strength of this particular link in the chain. The Apostle Paul uses the word call 24 times in his letters. And each time Paul uses this word, it's employed as a metaphor For God's sovereign and effective action of bringing an individual to saving faith in Christ with all of its attended blessings. In other words, and listen now, calling, as Paul uses the word here in Romans 8, is synonymous with conversion. To be called by God, is to be converted by God. To be called is to experience the supernatural creation of spiritual life. To be called, in the sense, is to be made new. To be called is to be made alive. And the one calling into creation, the spiritual life, the one making new, is God. That's why Paul says that Christians are called according to God's purpose. That's why Paul says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Let's say that again. (laughs) Those whom he predestined, he also called. That's why Paul also says, Those whom he called, he also justified. In other words... Christians are Christians because they are called by God. And to be called, then, is to experience the miracle of new birth. To be called is to be converted. But the way our world, and and this includes the Christian world in which many, perhaps most of us, have grown up... um, has almost no recognition of the biblical meaning of the term born again. Very typical is the way the Christian research firm, the Barna Group, uses the term born again. It, it, makes, the, it makes born again essentially interchangeable with the word evangelical. It was in 2008. It's been a while now. The Barna Group report stated, born-again Christians are defined in our surveys as people who said they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in their life today and who also indicated They believe that when they die, they will go to heaven because they confessed their sins and had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then the the report, after defining what born again means, went on to indicate that only 9% of those who professed to be born again Only 9% of them tithe or gave anything to their churches. 80% of all the teenagers who professed faith had sex outside of marriage. If if you're white and evangelical, you are more likely than white non-evangelicals to object to having neighbors of color. (laughs) In other words, according to the Barna Group research, born-again Christians sin as much as the world. Sacrifice as little as the world. Embrace non-biblical views of justice as readily as the world. Covet things as greedily as the world. And walk a God-ignoring walk simply as enthusiastically as the world. So born again, according to Barna, simply refers to something people say. Something that people indicate. What are you indicating today? But to use the biblical term like "born again" to describe people who say they are Christians is to use it in a way that's just—it's just, just unrecognizable unrec- to the biblical writers. For instance, 1 John chapter two, verse twenty-nine. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Such is how the biblical writers understand being born again, new birth, conversion. Now, obviously there's a lot of questions to respond to regarding you know potential errors regarding uh, perfectionism, as well as the you know the reality of genuine, authentic Christians who sin, who fail. But I believe it's accurate to say that according to the Bible, the findings of the Barna group are not that born-again people are permeated with worldliness. Rather, there are churches that are permeated by people who are simply not born again. Mike Lawrence is right when he says that conversion is more than being nice or sincere. Conversion is to be made new. And conversion is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And nothing less than the supernatural call of God generating spiritual life within is going to make anybody new. Think of the uh, good. I I just lose count. I mean, has there been 40 babies born in the last year around here? Maybe 50? How many of those babies born among us in the past couple years, how many of them were conceived and delivered by themselves? None. (laughs) It's just not how birth works. So consider then... The necessity of God's call, His particular, effectual, supernatural call in generating new birth. Jesus said to uh, Nicodemus, He said, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's pretty clear, right? If you don't experience conversion, if you don't experience new birth, you will not be saved. If you are not made new, you are not part of God's family and you will not go to heaven. And being made new is not merely something that you say or indicate. Being made new is something that God does. Think about what we've seen so far in this letter. Paul writes in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart, having been set free from sin. That's supernatural. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. It cannot. (laughs) Why not? Why can't an unconverted person submit to God's law? It's because we are spiritually dead. And dead doesn't do anything. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul writes, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Dead in sin, led by the devil, sons of disobedience. Dead means dead, right? I mean, just, It means we're insensible of the beauty and the worth and the attractiveness of the spiritual realities of God in the person of Jesus. And apart from a spiritual resurrection, being made alive according to the supernatural calling of God. Be alive! Who's going to perceive Jesus and his work and his ways as compelling, interesting, sweet, attractive? Loved ones, left to ourselves and to our own nature is how one commentator puts it. Our spiritual DNA is disobedience. Our destiny is God's wrath. We don't just do sin. We love it. Jesus said in John 3, and 20, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than light. They love sin rather than righteousness. Why? Why? How come? (laughs) For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. So by nature, we're under wrath and we love being there. The reason that we cannot submit to God is because submitting to God is something that faith does. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And apart from the grace of God, no one will turn and trust God. But there is hope. And where does our hope come from? To break free from our natural inabilities. Here's what Paul writes in... Romans chapter 8, verse 9. We've been here before. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So our only hope for salvation is that the Spirit of God must move into our hearts. Our only hope for conversion, for being made new, is the supernatural creation of spiritual life being called into being by God. One of the, the great joys that we experience as as elders, is um, everyone who shows an interest in moving towards being members of our church, we, we get to hear their their story because if, if you've, well, of course, you've seen the kind of covenant commitments that we make to one another. And, you know, the, we just say right off the bat that, that there's just no way that anybody would even be interested <laughs> in making those kind of commitments, much less able to make those kind of commitments apart from the life of God within them. So we want to hear people tell us about their experience of of this life, the spiritual life within them. So tell us your story. And, and so oftentimes people will say, well, you know, my story, it's kind of boring. And uh, others, other, you know, some people every now and then will hear some really crazy story. You know who you are. Um, but most of the time, you know, it, it's not years of drug addiction, it's not years of alcohol abuse, it's not years of enslavement to sexual bondage or emotionally destructive relationships before somebody came to faith in Christ. Those are amazing. But but for those of us who trusted Jesus like when we were ten and like the worst thing that we ever did was talk back to our parents. You know, or whispered in the back row of the church service, you know, what was going on. I mean, those stories are kind of tame, but here's I have a friend. He likes to say, resurrections from the dead are never boring. And if you love and trust Jesus, no matter if you We're in bondage to drugs for, you know, 20 years. Or if the worst thing you'd ever done was whispered in the back row of the church during the service. You have been raised. You've been raised and your conversion is not boring. Your conversion was necessary. New birth is necessary. Conversion according to the supernatural call of God to your dead, unresponsive, enslaved, captive, blind, blahness toward God is nothing short of a crazy, awesome resurrection miracle. And so why is it then that when we talk about calling, effectual divine calling, Particular calling. What makes that so unsettling? (laughs) Isn't it because of the other key word in the golden chain? Is so unsettling? Predestination is unsettling. And because predestination is unsettling, well then saying that God is the ultimate and decisive cause of saving faith is unsettling. But Paul writes, shall we say it together? Those whom, come on, those whom he predestined, he also called. Why does that make people cringe? Oh, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, and some are personal, and some are shaped by past experiences and weird things. And it can be very emotionally based. But, but isn't it perhaps ultimately because God's effectual and predestination-based calling? Because that's what we're saying, Right? Those who be predestined, you also called. So to be called is based on being predestined. Isn't it because God's effectual predestination-based calling confronts us with how utterly hopeless is our condition apart from his divine and regenerating grace? I mean, it's, I think it's appealing to hear, you must be born again, And think, oh, okay, I'll raise my hand. Good, I'll do that. I'll do that. When there's no way that anyone can do that apart from God's astonishing grace. I mean, I really mean it. Any teaching that makes salvation contingent upon God's effectual calling, God's predestining work, is unsettling. For a long time, it was unsettling to me. I avoided certain teachers in college and taught Bible classes because that's what they taught. And I didn't like that notion. I didn't want to hear it. and I think it's because it means that our conversion is something that is done to us as opposed to something that we do ourselves. And that just doesn't sit well with my impulse to get up and get it done. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. You ready? He caused us to be born again to a living hope. He caused us. I've gotten much more comfortable now through the years when I tell my story of coming to faith in Jesus to quote, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, where it says, it is because of Him, it's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Perhaps another reason it's unsettling to say that God is the ultimate and decisive cause of our salvation is that it confronts us with the, the absolute freedom of God. He's just free to do whatever He wants pleases. And that's what he does. He's the only entity, the living entity that exists that does whatever he pleases, whenever he pleases. It's not true of anyone else. God's predestining a people to be saved is God's right and God's prerogative. It's what sets him apart as God. Nobody else can do that. (laughs) And further, it's the very basis for calling into spiritual life and freedom those who will turn and trust him. Those whom God predestined, he also called. God's calling into being our spiritual life, the life by which we are then able to turn and trust Christ for our justification, is based on God's predestining us for such life and salvation. This is a rock. This is, this is a chain link made of gold. God's calling is based on God's predestining. And that predestining is based on the freedom God asserts to do whatever He pleases. Look for a, a moment here Look for a moment here at First Corinthians chapter one, uh, beginning in verse twenty-three, where where Paul writes, "We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles." So that that would be an example of God's general call to all people, in all places at all times, to turn and, and trust Jesus. That, that's what we do. We're, we're preaching to everybody. We're inviting everybody. God's call goes out to everybody. And then verse 24, but to those who are called, so now Paul's, Paul's or he, he's, he's got a different meaning this time to the word call. He's referring to the call of Romans chapter 8, verse 30. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So there's this general call to everybody, but then there's an effectual call, a powerful call, a life giving call, a regenerating call, a resurrection of the soul call and when those whom god has predestined to be conformed to the image of his son hear that call doesn't matter whether they're jews gentiles or whoever when they hear it the message of christ crucified is powerful to them it's wisdom to them it makes sense to them it just puts everything together for them the message of christ crucified is glorious it's beautiful It's sweet, and it changes everything. It's not true for everybody. We humans are not the drivers of our own spiritual transformation. God has designed salvation in such a way that we get all the joy of the forgiveness, we get the joy of the justification, we get the joy of... Being adopted into God's family, we get the joy of being eternally known, eternally loved, eternally cared for by the Lord, and He gets all the glory. Going on in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, here's the point, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It, and because of Him you're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what does this mean for us? And there are so many things... So many fruits that flow out of being arrested by this. I'm just going to mention a few because we're going to stay in Romans 8.30 for a couple more weeks. But here here are some virtues, right, that I believe this doctrine is meant to generate. This doctrine of of God's divine, effectual, converting call and God's free... Generous, sovereign predestining of those who will hear that call and respond. The first is love for God and love for one another. It's just meant to make us a loving people. If those whom God predestined, He also called, then one way we know that we're called is that we love God. Remember verse 28? For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Being called according to his purpose and having spiritual life awakened in us, it produces love for God. That's how you know that you're called according to his purpose. We love God because he first loved us. But because God has first loved us, then we also love each other. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The doctrine of that those whom God predestined, He also called into being the spiritual life, it produces real affection for God, pleasure in God. And lay down your life's servanthood for one another. Here's the second thing. This might be one of the biggest things. It produces and shapes a humble people. When the, when the Lord opened my eyes... To the beauty of his sovereign grace and my salvation. I, I just, I have to confess. Um, you know, this was back in my 20s. And I, I, I know that I suffered from what others have diagnosed as early onset Calvinism. It was just, I was pathetic. I was, you know, I was so struck by the glory of God's freedom. It was like just being born again, again. I I worshipped like I'd never worshipped before. I praised God like I'd never praised Him before. I was spiritually zealous like I'd never been spiritually zealous before. And I was an absolute jerk like I had always been before. (laughs) I I was so enlightened. I was so right. And everybody else was so, oh man, you're just missing it. You don't get it so beneath me, so smug, so arrogant and dumb, hurtful. And when I think back on it, I am so ashamed. How could such a view of salvation produce such arrogance? David Mathis writes, The essence of humility is to feel and think and say and act in a way that shows that I'm not God. I think that captures it. (laughs) It produces a humble people. Not like we know it. Here we are. We're the humble people. But, but it produces something real that's very different than that other thing. The doctrine of God's freedom and sovereign grace and our salvation is meant to shape a people, a culture of humility. Here's a third thing. It, it's, it's meant to engender confidence and boldness in witness and mission. It's not intended to create Passivity. It's not meant to well, you know, God's going to save people, then what do we have to do? No, it's just the opposite. It engenders confidence. It makes Spurgeons and Edwardses and Whitfields. If God is the ultimate and decisive cause of salvation, and if all those whom God has predestined are also called, and if all those who are called are also justified, then we can go and we can proclaim Christ crucified, risen, with the confidence that there's some out there who are going to be saved. They actually will be saved. It's not going to be just something that they said or indicated. I, years ago, I preached this text. It was another place, another time. After the service, uh, a gentleman... A first-time visitor to our church, he approached me. His face was sort of set like a flint, so I knew this wasn't going to be the greatest experience. And uh, with with very, you know, quivering voice, intense emotion, he says, I take it you're a Calvinist. And I said, well, (laughs) I do believe that God is the ultimate and decisive cause of salvation. And he responded, well, then I have no idea how you could ever hope that anybody would be saved. Just stormed out, head down. <laughs> and I was, I was a bit, besides being thunderstruck, I was a little disheartened by that. And um, feeling sort of badly um, that maybe I messed this up. And, uh, but less than five minutes later, there was a dear, dear, dear old saint woman whose unconverted husband we had prayed to be saved. We prayed for him to be saved for years. And she approached me with tears in her eyes and she said, You know, today, for the first time in a long, long time, I feel hope that God can give my husband the gift of new birth. That's the right effect. (laughs) Finally, and again we could say so much more. When by the Spirit of God that we recognize that our salvation is entirely of God, that it is entirely on account of the riches of His free and sovereign grace that God makes friends of those who were once His resolute enemies, isn't it then that we would be Appropriately, fittingly, discernibly thankful people. Just so thankful, grateful that God would give us such a gift. To God be all the glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, be glorified. We know that you are rightly glorified in putting your justice and your righteousness and your wrath on display in dealing with your enemies, rebels, appropriately. But would you be glorified here today by putting on display and by pouring out the workings of your Holy Spirit in such a way that, that we behold the glories of mercy. Mercy shown freely, not based on anything about us, not based on what family we came from, not based on anything that we did at the right time and the right way, not based on just how we got our theology all right, not based on, on all the, you know, the wise things that we have accomplished, not based on how humble we are, not based on how Tenderhearted we are, but based on your free, free and sovereign saving grace. Be glorified in that. And, and reveal, reveal the wisdom, the beauty, the wonder of being given that blessing of hearing your call and beholding beauties in Jesus. That our hearts would turn and trust you. Astonish us with what a wonder that is. And so we ask you to come Holy Spirit and work among us. And be glorified God the Father. Be glorified Lord Jesus in what you've done. Be glorified Holy Spirit in your work. Be glorified we pray in Jesus name. Amen.